I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Monday, May 19, 1997, and as the full-time sirens sounded in the Tri-Series final between New South Wales and Queensland, scores were locked at 22 all. A further 20 minutes of extra time before a crowd of 35,000 at ANZ Stadium had failed to break the deadlock in a contest that had breathed life into a rapidly flagging Super League season. Enter Noel Goldthorpe, whose field goal in the 104th minute handed the game and the Tri-Series title to New South Wales. This is part one of Two Tones, the 35th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Whoopie doo, mate. We're back. We're back, yeah. We're really getting deep into the Super League season and getting nearer to the end of our series. And this is a pretty pivotal chapter for me. Reading through the research, which I'll set it out, we're looking at the rep season in this chapter. So it's a two-parter where we'll look at State of Origin, we'll look at the Super League Tri-Series, we'll look at the international fixtures that the ARL could dish up and what the Super League produced on the international front. And going through all of these different games and machinations along the way, I think it tells you a lot about the state of the game and the strengths and limitations that both competitions had. Yeah, I mean, I'll be looking forward to this one since uh, way back because I've got good memories of this period. The name Two Tones, now, is that a reference to the abominable jersey we'll no doubt discuss later for the ARL, or is that about the two Tony Tumavavi contracts? <laughs> so it is a reference to the jersey. So, in fact, we're not going to discuss it later. We're going to discuss it right now or imminently. But I chose this name because, obviously, there's the two-tone New South Wales origin jerseys that are just horrific. There's no other spin to put on them. But then also the Super League Tri-Series jerseys were two-tone in nature as well and uh, similarly bad, but you'll give Super League a pass because they had to go for something different and new. That's a good point, but I I will say it reminded me of one of those magic eye puzzles. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just unfocus your eyes. You'll see Larry Daly. (laughs) For me, the enduring nightmare of those Origin jerseys is that when New South Wales introduced a two-tone design for Origin in, I think, 2021, just looking at the jersey on face value, it's not too bad, but it just immediately brings back this repressed trauma <laughs> I have about that 1997 jersey. There's something about seeing an own goal where the person's facing their own goal and purposely kicks it as hard as they can into the back of the net that really upsets yeah. you. <laughs> So we will turn our attention to the why and the what of these jerseys, but maybe for younger listeners or older listeners who have done a better job than I had of fully repressing those memories, (laughs) just Google 1997 State of Origin and have a look at this 
awful, awful, awful jersey that New South Wales were wearing. <laughs> One of the most underrated parts of it is the little Art Deco uh, strips. Oh, the little white, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the little white trim half yeah. halfway up. The jersey. Yeah, yeah, that's terrific. So Roy Masters in this era wasn't averse to a bit of hyperbole in his announcements about the game, but I think this is a one thousand percent accurate opinion about these jerseys. This is Masters in the Sydney Morning Herald. The ARL has ignored the message from the terraces and joined Super League and the Australian Rugby Union in perverting jumpers to the extent that they resemble a surreal blur. What amazing prose. <laughs> I read that. It was so scathing and perfect. Yeah. The whole thing is a mess. So Neil Whittaker said in May when the jerseys were launched that he didn't really like them. It was a decision that was made before he came to power. And I well, understand that there's contracts in place and, you know, maybe they started printing. But if I was Neil Whitaker, the newly installed CEO, I would be pulling the brakes on that. Well, think back across all the different CEOs we've had and chair people. I mean, most of them, I'd say, besides probably David Smith would have just knocked it on the head mm. and said, yeah. no, this is a really bad idea because we're going with tradition and um, yep. this is not traditional. It's the absolute antithesis of tradition and it's ugly. And that's the key word there. In a year where the ARL, as we've said before, were leaning so heavily on tradition because it was the one thing that they genuinely had over Super League. It was the one thing that they could use to sell the game effectively. Most of the foundation clubs had gone back to their 1908 strips. There was a heavy sentiment about tradition and, you know, like throwbacks and retro in the air at the ARL. So why would you then go to one of the most popular jerseys in the game and do that to it. It's literally sabotaging your own work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And giving a free kick to not only Super League, but Queensland. So Fatty came out and said, I couldn't believe what New South Wales did to their jersey. I don't think anyone could. As soon as I saw their jumper, I thought, right, we should go back to our original jersey, the one we wore in the 80s with so much passion and so much success. Absolutely. And I, I think that Queensland have, over the years, have done a, a better job than New South Wales of doing that. So I think John McDonald, the QRL chairman, said that when he saw those jerseys, he was like, oh, we should go back to the big Q logo that we had in the 80s, which oh, I think yeah. Queensland have done it at various points. I think it's a step too far, the big Q, but yeah. <laughs> Queensland don't get away scot-free here. They've had some stinkers over the years too, but nothing to that level. Yeah. No. And uh, with that timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, even in this era with the white, Lines, not a real classic Queensland jersey. No. But the jerseys weren't the only thing that was changing in origin, and the big change from a New South Wales perspective was a new coach. So Phil Gould had his club duties at the Roosters. He was a new father, and he decided that, that was all too much to juggle with having the origin gig as well. So he stepped down. Bozo was originally offered the job. He turned it down as well. And then, so basically, they needed a new coach. You had Tim Sheens on the other side. You know, Chris Anderson was on the other side as well. There suddenly was a dearth of New South Wales coaches that they could draw on. And so, in the end, it came down to a choice between Wayne Pearce and Tommy Radonikus, which it's funny that Peter Louie didn't rate a mention. Peter Louie just can't get respect, even though he deserves it. I know. Like, he did so well with that team and forgotten man even while he was at the peak of his powers coaching might have been the brill cream 
But regardless, it came down to Wayne Pierce and Tommy. And it's interesting that the two deciding factors, one was Neil Whittaker as an old Balmain guy saying that he didn't want his administration tainted with some of the politics of the past, while not mentioning anyone by name. Like I think it's a clear break between the perceived manly bias of the previous administration and this era. You're such a gentleman dropping perceived in there. <laughs> appreciate that. But, I mean, um, I was so anti-Tommy at that period because I was like, I didn't understand rugby league at the time, really, and um, rugby league men. I just thought, this guy's an idiot. He's a bloke from the pub. He's a toothless brawler. He's a fruit and veg salesman. What are they doing? But then he's actually perfect for Origin where you don't really need to coach. You just need to get people fired up. Yeah, and I think I've said it in a previous episode that to me that it's no coincidence that it's at this particular point in time that Tommy's profile in the game really got elevated. You know, and that was beyond just him being the West coach. He was just front and center all the time. And it helps when, you know, he's the biggest renter quote of all time. But also just when you're hearkening back to the old days and the traditional brutality of rugby league, he's your perfect spokesman. When there's already flagging interest in the game, you've got competition from Super League, you kind of need like a wrestling style personality to be able to sell your product. Well, unlike wrestling, he's um, actually throwing the punches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was a perfect guy for the time, really. Yeah. In hindsight. And when I say it's so kind of crude to say that, oh, he was good at selling the product because I don't think that's how he thought at all. Like, I think Tommy was 100% genuine, but his genuine outlandishness was very marketable for the game. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes him great is that he wasn't self-referential and putting it on. It was just him being authentic. Yeah, and so he was front and centre in the media. The typical stuff saying, we hate them, they hate us, blah, 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 which, you know, you've heard for 40 years, but like doing it in a very Tommy-ish way. So he wouldn't, there was a press conference in Melbourne for the second origin and he and his team wouldn't enter through the same door as Queensland. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> He said, having to be near them so close to a game made me cranky. <laughs> when it's genuine hate, like, and sometimes it fades in and out from that and it's kind of friendly and then sometimes it goes back to genuine hate. Yeah. Like midway through the Queensland um, nine in a row um, and it got back to genuine hatred. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's the best time. Yeah. And when you consider that New South Wales had basically owned Origin in the 90s, Queensland had the unlikely win in 95, but New South Wales swept them in 96. It was definitely like New South Wales with the ascendancy. So for Tommy to be the one pushing the hatred and Fatty being the one toning it down at times, I think that says a lot in itself. Yeah. And the outlandishness didn't just extend to his feelings towards Queensland. My favourite part was his statement that, he was hoping to play the final minutes of the third Origin match in Sydney <laughs> if they'd won the series by that point. <laughs> Poor old Aaron Raper can't get a run, but Tommy can go. <laughs> so his quote was, I'm the coach of the side. I can do anything. All the boys are saying, play, play, come on for the last five minutes. I tell you, I wouldn't miss a tackle. I'd be in the right position. <laughs> can you imagine that today? <laughs> so it was quickly... Shut down by Neil Whitaker, who said, I think that's a terrible idea. He got selected to coach and the players got selected to play. That's not what the game's about. 
So New South Wales had wrapped up the series by Game 3, but then Game 3 ended up being a very close contest. So there wasn't really an opportunity for Tommy to get in. Do you think if it's the 70th minute and New South Wales are up 20-0, is Tommy putting boots on? (laughs) I know that Alan Langer would have a sore jaw. (laughs) Ultimately, I don't think he would have, but it actually wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) He's such a missed figure in the game, isn't he? Yeah. So from the other side of things, Paul Voughton was coaching what would be his last series of origin, and he basically telegraphed that from the start, saying, if we lose this game, I'd imagine no invitation would be extended me to coach next year, and I probably wouldn't be seeking one. Lost a bit of the steam, didn't he, towards the end? I mean, one foot in, one foot out sort of vibes. It's like, yeah, can't really have that at origin level. No, and as I've said many times, you get one magic run. So the success of 1995 wasn't a recipe that could be repeated. When they were already down in numbers, they'd had some disharmony with all the Super League stuff. It was definitely time for fresh blood and a new angle on Queensland origin. But old habits die hard and Queensland were caught in that position of having to downplay the absence of their Super League players. Artie Beetson came out and said that he thought they were better off without them. He said, maybe we might have overrated our Queensland Super League players. Look at what happened in the Tri-Series against New South Wales. A lot of those players are getting long in the tooth. <laughs> oh, yeah. Steve Renov, Alan Langer. Yeah. <laughs> Wendell Saylor, Kenel Order, what duds. And Chris Close joined in as well. He said Alfie being there actually maybe had a negative effect on the team. He said... I'm sure it had a lot to do with the presence of Alfie Langer, one of the greatest players and fiercest competitors I've ever seen. I believe Alfie's mere presence in the team confused a lot of those players from other clubs. He's such a legend and so highly regarded by his fellow players that I'm sure some guys were in awe of him. Wally Lewis had a similar effect on some blokes. I can recall games in the 80s when the rest of us would stand around waiting for Wally to do something. So Wally Lewis, famous origin bust. I don't think Queensland ever won a series with Wally in the team, did they? (laughs) you got to admire Choppy's commitment to the cause, though. Yeah, yeah. Such a loyal soldier. Always got fatty's back yep. and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And someone that there was no, like, grudges or scars from the whole Super League thing. He was just a Queenslander and whoever was in charge, Choppy was welcome and a big personality and voice within the team. But so in putting the team together... This was the game one team for Queensland. Robbie O'Davis, Brett Dallas, Matt Singh, Mark Coyne, Danny Moore, Ben Iken, Adrian Lamb, Neil Tierney, Jamie Goddard, Craig Smith, Gary Larson, Billy Moore, Wayne Bartram, Jason Smith, Jeremy Schloss, Tony Hearn and Stuart Kelly. So obviously it's not a stacked team, but I don't think we're in the Terry Cook, Craig Teven kind of era. I think it's a stronger team on balance than the 95 side. Yeah, I mean, but you're getting there with Stuart Kelly and those sort of dudes. Yeah, yeah. But Craig Smith's a New Zealander, isn't he? Yeah, one of those funny ones where he played for Queensland despite being a Kiwi. The eligibility in this period is sickening. Yeah. And it was a thin squad considering Ben Iken was picked at 5'8", despite never having played there at club level. He was handed the kicking duties despite being the third-choice kicker at North's. And also picked there despite being out of form and Fatty talking about Origin as being a way to get him into form. He said, 
I reckon that's all the kid needs. I've seen him play a bit lately and he definitely has been down in confidence. This will give him a real lift and I just know he'll do the job for us next week. <laughs> Using Origin to play <laughs> yourself into form. There's so much spin. I cannot deal with the spin in 97. Oh, it is just insane. Both sides are just yeah. shame warning it. Yeah, yeah. We're going to see so much spin. Considering our next chapter is World Club Challenge, that these two <laughs> chapters are probably the most spin-heavy segment of the entire series. God. So from the New South Wales perspective, Hooker was the big dilemma, and we're going to see that play itself out in a farcical and, and really sad way in Game 2. For Game 1, Joey got picked as Hooker, despite not having played 40 minutes of football off the bench for the year. He was selected despite the protestation of Mal Riley, who wasn't happy with the way he was being used, talking about the strain of having to defend in the front line and then play halfback in attack and how taxing that was on a player who had zero match fitness. The lack of a match fitness wasn't a problem for Matthew Johns, however, who said that Origin would be a good way to get him match fit for the night. So again, like a strange like uh, hierarchy of using Origin to play yourself into club form. But Joey wasn't the only choice at hooker. There was a lot of talk about who would play there for New South Wales. Hang on, mate. Hang on. Can we stop saying Joey's banging to be at hooker? He wasn't going to be at hooker. He's going to yeah. wear number nine. And yeah. Play I know. So they'd have to pick another hooker. I know. I know. It's it's so ridiculous. Especially when all the contenders were actual hookers. So there was players like Jim Sedaris, who was actually injured at the time, but would be fit for the latter half of the series. Cherry Mesher, Nathan Brown, Aaron Raper, all these names were getting thrown around as to, you know, potential New South Wales hookers. So City Country became a real kind of bellwether and a lot of talk about who was going to get selected. And it also became a bit of a farce when city selectors waited to see who country picked and when Nathan Brown missed out they tried to see if they could get him picked for city <laughs> fucking hell and that was eventually shut down but it was put to Neil Whitaker who said that they might look at the eligibility and he said we might look harder next year at making it a better selection trial for state of origin by looking at the selection process if you're going to do that, just call it possibles versus probables, as they used to do in the olden days. Like, if it's city country, play it as city country. And if it's not, treat it as an origin trial. Just that comment, oh, yeah, so maybe next year we'll make it fair nickum. Make it fair nickum every year. Yeah. Or don't have it. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, it's really remarkable that city country lasted as long as it did. When for the entirety of our lives watching rugby league, it was already Mickey Mouse. Such a shame, man. You know how I feel about City Country. Yeah. But so City was scrambling to find a hooker with Nathan Brown ruled out. Jim Sedaris was injured. And uh, another choice was Aaron Raper, who was actually playing reserve grade at Parramatta at the time. Uh, <laughs> this made me laugh. Although he did play well in reserve grade on Saturday, his father and selector John Raper told the selection meeting. <laughs> Is there anybody in this squad that's in form? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, can't you just picture Johnny Raper in the room going, actually, Aaron in the seconds was playing pretty well, you know? W worth <laughs> thinking about. 
But the funny one for me is Jim Sedaris, who, as I said, was injured for City Country. But I think once you move beyond the 2v Johns combination, and to me, Sedaris was the most obviously qualified backup. And he was actually fit for game two, where Joey got injured in game one and couldn't play. Jim Sedaris was fit, but was overlooked by New South Wales selectors. And he puts that down to a strained relationship with Tom Rodonicus. He said, it's a long story. When I was at West and told Tommy I was headed for Manly, it didn't go down very well. I was dropped from first grade and I couldn't believe it when he told the press I wasn't putting in. He couldn't look me in the eye when I questioned him about that. And I was stupid. I said a few harsh words to him and that really sealed my fate. When he was named the state coach, I half expected to miss the boat. Do you think he would carry a grudge even if it hurt the Blues? I think he would. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I think so. I think it was kind of untenable, but I just love that I said a few harsh words to him. (laughs) (laughs) But also I think he would actually respect that. Yeah, yeah. But regardless, it wasn't to be. So for game two, Joey was unavailable. He was picked for game one after only having that 40 minutes of football for the year. And then 28 minutes into the Origin, he got injured and then didn't play again until Origin game three. Considering how the season ended for Joey, it was a very strange season with like Leo Dinova playing, you know, half the season at Newcastle and doing a great job there. He had a great season. Yeah. And so we will get to that game too and the controversy that developed as a result. But first, let's just look at game one. So New South Wales, (laughs) what's that? Do we have to? We're going to do a very cursory look at these (laughs) games, which I hesitate to call Origin inconsequential, but if there were ever three Origin games that (laughs) mean less than any others, I think it's this year. So not a classic game. Ratings winner. They didn't really drop too much from the United Origin years. They beat the Tri-Series final ratings, which they were happy about. The crowd itself was embarrassing, 28,000 at Suncorp. I don't think that's that bad, to be honest, given the situation. Not that bad, given the situation. Made to look worse by the fact that an Australian soccer match had 40,000 people the week before. Which is amazing in itself. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this was a very different era of Australian soccer. I think they moved on from the spew jerseys of 94, but (laughs) it wasn't very high in the Australian sporting landscape. So game two was taken to Melbourne. And so this was the third time in four years that they'd played there. And it was really important for the ARL to get a good game. So they had that 85,000 in 1994, but it was a dour contest, wasn't really showcasing the best of rugby league. Went back in 95 without the Super League players. There was a big brawl, but not a classic game. So it was really important that this game showcase the best of what rugby league could be. I think you can get away with it if it's once every five or 10 years and you can guarantee there's 90,000 people there. But in this era, going three times in four years where interest in rugby league is failing in New South Wales and Queensland, let alone Victoria, it was over-egging the situation. Well, I've got to say I respect the Melbourneian population for knowing that it was a half-assed product this year. Yeah. And not turning up. Yeah. I'm surprised they even knew about it to that extent, but yeah. Well, not many did. (laughs) (laughs) They were hoping for 50,000, would settle for 35. In the end, they got 25,000 people at a 90,000-seat stadium. So not a great spectacle. And saying that again, 25 
in Melbourne in the middle of a civil war with those jerseys. Mm. Not yep. disgraceful. Yeah. <laughs> so to the game itself, a couple of notable things. Firstly is an interesting Queensland selection, which was Julian O'Neill, who had recently arrived from Super League. He was considered for game one. In the end, the selectors decided to give him a, another game in the ARL to settle in. Fatty really wanted him in the team in game one. Basically, as soon as Queensland lost that first game, O'Neill was fast-tracked into the team, which to me is like the biggest indication that it's not 1995 anymore. <laughs> it's not this great story of guys, you know, pulling together and culture no. and all the rest of it. It's like, we're going to get the biggest dressing room cancer of all time <laughs> in the mix because he might give us a chance of winning. And to quote you, if you can play, you will play. Yeah. <laughs> uh, instantly was up to his old tricks with reports that he was on the drink with Willie Khan in the midst of the origin camp. This was denied by Fatty, but Paul Crawley was in the Sun Herald was adamant that it really happened. So, you know, pick your fighter there. But regardless, O'Neill was in the team and that gave him the unique honour of being the only person in history to play a tri-series and a state of origin match in the same year. Incredible. (laughs) And so in the end, it was a good game of footy that was overshadowed by the Aaron Raper incident. So Aaron Raper had been selected at hooker in the end with Joey out. He was named in the run-on squad, but John Simon ended up starting with Raper on the bench and on the bench is where he stayed. He was not used by Tommy for the entire 80 minutes. So two of you was a hooker and Simon was a halfback? Yeah. Well, you can't have two hookers out there. (laughs) Yeah. Unless two of you was going to play halfback, but he'd been playing hooker the whole time, so it's not that crazy that he wouldn't start, right? And John Simon confirms that basically once the team was named, he was told that he'd be starting. I was a big John Simon fan, by the way. Yeah, he was a really good player, and he'd come a long way considering it's really interesting that John Simon went to East Because basically he'd been told by Phil Gould that come to East and you'll play for Australia and, you know, your rep career will take off. Did so, can't force his way into the first grade team with Adrian Lamb there. And it looked like he was over. I remember John Simon being this star at Illawarra going to East. And then it was like, you know, he was on the bench. He wasn't playing and you thought he was done. But then he came back, had good years at Parramatta. And yeah, it basically killed his legacy. People, I think, only really remember the Illawarra years and then the ill-fated move to East. Mm. But so back to Aaron Raper, I think part of the problem came from the fact that he wasn't Tommy's choice. So Tommy wanted Cherry Mesher there. The vote was unanimous for Raper against Jim Sedaris. The selectors didn't really give Cherry Mesher much of a thought at all. And I think this goes to show that in State of Origin, the coach needs the team that the coach wants. It's madness that we did 30 years without that. but Yeah. You feel bad for Aaron Raper, but it shouldn't have got to that point. Like I think Ray Price had a great statement on it. He said, if a coach is of a mind not to play a selected player, the selectors should know that. I reckon they must have had enough doubt in the Raper matter to have at least asked Tommy, and that might have avoided the blue that his total omission last Wednesday night triggered. Well, obviously, John stood over some people and made it happen, right? I mean, that's the obvious thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think Johnny Raper was the key to getting him into the door. But for me, it's more that the separation between the selectors and the coach, like Tommy didn't have much of a say, if any, in the team he was given. Either way, 
what he did was disgusting. Yeah. So he said that, you know, he was planning to play him, but Jim Dimmick got injured and then he had to keep John Simon on for his kicking. So there was no place for Aaron Raper. But this was Sherlock in the rugby league week. Why not shift Simon to half, put Jeff Tuvey at 5'8", where he plays for Manly, and brought a fresh Raper into the pack? The other prime opportunity existed at 14-0, at which point Raper's hard grafting in the middle of the ruck would have been useful. No, the excuses won't stand up. It simply looked like Raper was marked not wanted. Awful. I told you this happened to me once, right, in baseball? No. <laughs> uh, I played for the Toronto Tigers in baseball with all my mates, and then I played in this summer comp in uh, Central Coast, Mingara Leagues, Mingara Rebels Baseball Club. And uh, this guy, Daryl Grubb-Rogers, was the coach, this morbidly obese man. And um, I wasn't a great player, I'll give him that. But in the semifinal, <laughs> I was on the bench, and we every, you get half a game on the bench, and it was like two all the whole way, and I just didn't get on. And my dear mum, my beloved mum, just gave me my biggest mouthful. And I'm like, oh, calm down, mum, it's okay. <laughs> anyway, for the grand final, I got on in the second half and got two stand-up doubles oh. right, just to stick it up here. It was 28 nil in the grand final. <laughs> but, um, so I got sat on a bench at 14, right? <laughs> Drove 45 minutes to get there, sat on the bench the whole way, cheering on the team like an absolute loser. Because oh. Grub, Daryl Grub Rogers, <laughs> didn't want to put me in. Don't hold a grudge or anything. And I assumed he was dead, but apparently he's the ground announcer at the um, Newcastle Trots. Oh, really? <laughs> he must have done a Gary Harley and survived. All right. Well, shout out to Grub. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I feel Aaron Raper's pain, but I honestly didn't care. Was my poor mum was devastated. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel the pain of the Raper. Do you think Raper did it to himself with a decision before the game to peroxide his hair blonde? I think that wouldn't have helped. And I did have an undercut too, by the way, at the time. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I didn't help myself either. But We are long-standing proponents of the theory that peroxide and rugby league are a horrible match. <laughs> And I think it's been proven in this case. For, from Raper's end, he said, I was bored. I just wanted to get it done. There was no footballing reason. I've always wanted to do it. You had to do it in your origin debut. Yeah. <laughs> you had to muggle air on your origin debut. The only haircut you get before a rep debut in rugby league is a buzz cut. Yep. That's all you can get. Yeah. Even, even that might be considered too Larry. That's, yeah. <laughs> Who's he think he is? G.I. <laughs> Joe? <laughs> But yeah, not peroxide before origin. But in the aftermath of the game, there was predictable outrage. And most predictably of all, a lot of that outrage was coming from John Raper, who was, think about your mum with grub times 10. I think that was Chook's reaction. <laughs> I can't imagine that confrontation. <laughs> so uh, in the Herald, Paul Kent reported that Don Ferner, who was chairman of selectors, said that, Johnny Raper had made comments toward him as he left his seat. Uh, Ferner said, Chook was slightly under the weather. It's just a natural reaction for a father whose son didn't get on. <laughs> of course he was under the weather. <laughs> Never mind he's a selector, but yeah. <laughs> and I think he was even more under the weather later in the night at the post-match function where he was overheard telling anyone who would listen that he was going to take Aaron to Super League. <laughs> so Aaron Raper, who A, is a 25-year-old man <laughs> and B, has 
binding contracts with both the ARL and his club team Parramatta. But Chook's going to take him to Super League like he's fallen out with a coach and is taking his six-year-old son to Pentehurst RSL. <laughs> Think about how junior league pettiness it is to be in the actual big leagues of rugby league. <laughs> I'm taking him to another club, not getting a run. But I really feel for Aaron. I feel for any son of a um, immortal playing rugby league. Yeah. And he did well, and he got selected. He he was a really good player. It's just a shame that they did it to him like it, that. It was sad. Give him five minutes. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was just sad because it was the tiniest window of opportunity. So Joey came back for game three, which, by the way, Mal really was not happy about Joey being selected for that game, having played 68 minutes of football for the year, getting selected to play hooker, which wasn't his position, uh, or actually defend at hooker, play, you know, halfback in attack, not his position, in a dead rubber. Mal really, obviously being from the north of England, didn't have as much respect for origin as the average uh, Australian player. I yep. suppose if it was the Cumbria rep team, he'd be like, <laughs> mate, get him in. <laughs> but so for Aaron Raper, it was the tiniest window of opportunity. He lucked his way into a World Cup squad, got selected for origin, you could say he was lucky to get those jumpers and, and those opportunities and he wouldn't have got them in a United competition. But I also think this period really negatively affected his career and his legacy. Absolutely. With something like this, you can't live down. We're still talking yeah. about it now, for God's yeah. sakes. Yeah. I mean, in another era, he probably has a unspectacular but solid 10-year career and, you know, all you think about is, oh, Aaron Raper, yeah, that's right, he was John's son, played hooker for a while there. But instead it's like, oh, yeah, Aaron Raper, you know, didn't get on the field in origin. and That's why it's cruel. It's so cruel yeah. that Tommy did that, and he should be rolling in his grave over that. Yeah, I agree. Like, it was just unnecessarily cruel. But Tommy's legacy in terms of origin in 1997 isn't the Aaron Raper incident, and I think even that incident is really kind of for train spotters now. It doesn't really get talked about. What does still get brought up ad nauseum is Cattle Dog, which <laughs> took place in Game 3. And the context of it is that there'd been a lot of talk in the media and a lot of rumours of fights at various points, but <laughs> it had been a, a fairly tame Origin series up to that point. In fact, the only fireworks took place at Melbourne's Crown Casino after Game 2 when Tim Brasher and Mark Coyne got into a bit of a fight. I never pictured Mark Coyne being that loose, but you had that I know, Singapore incident. And <laughs> got some form, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird because he's, you know, like the accountant. He just seems really kind of nerdy. and But, yeah, he's got it in him. But, yeah, so Mary had to put down his bourbon and coke to break it up. But... <laughs> I mean, if you told me I'll give you a million dollars if you can guess what drink Mary was having, <laughs> I'd be a millionaire right now. <laughs> but so basically there'd been a lot of talk. Fatty's saying, oh, Tommy's the only one throwing it up. We're not. We're not interested in fighting. And then saying that he didn't think there was anyone in the New South Wales team who could throw them anyway. <laughs> I mean, it was telegraphed in via the media for two weeks. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, Cattle Dog was the name of Tommy's genius play. And the genius play was to start a fight, basically. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what Cattle Dog yeah. is, I'd be very, very surprised. 
yeah, I, I didn't want to go into it in too much detail because I, I think it's a well-trodden path. But um, Joey was on SEN a couple of years ago on the radio, and, and I love his breakdown of the incident. He said, as we were packing the scrum, we could hear Tommy yelling out, cattle dog, cattle dog, cattle dog. So at that time, I was playing hooker and I was packing into the scrum. Steve Menzies was the back rower and he was yelling, no cattle dog. But then Spud's eyes start to roll and Chief's eyes start to roll. So Spud goes and packs in with a loose arm. Spud goes boom and hits Craig Smith and knocks him out. <laughs> oh, Christ. Poor Craig Smith sitting here like sitting back. <laughs> uh, and that led to an all-in brawl. Probably the most famous uh, incident within that incident today is Joey getting decked by Jamie Goddard. Joey's rendition of that and how he self-deprecates is, is one of the great storytellers. I love it. Oh, my favourite part is when he's in the dressing shed. So he and Goddard both got sin-binned. Joey, decidedly worse for wear, he was getting stitched up. I think he got about 20 stitches put in. He was with club doctor Nathan Gibbs, and this is Joey's account. So I go in the sheds, and I'm getting stitched up at this stage by Dr. Nathan Gibbs, and I say, mate, what happened? He goes, you've been sin-binned. And I said, how did I go? He said, go have a look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, mate, I feel for you, Joey. I can't fight either, mate. (laughs) So it was carnage at the judiciary in the aftermath. Jamie Goddard got suspended. Joey got suspended. Wayne Bartram got suspended. Not everyone was happy at that. Uh, Chris Close said, this will dead set do me. (laughs) (laughs) I like this. Because of the physical nature of our game and the pride at stake at this level, there will be the odd flare-up and a few punches thrown. The players and the public expect that. But what the supporters won't accept is a watered-down version of rugby league, and they're showing us that all over the country. They don't want to see 26 robots out there playing a frilly interpretation of touch football. <laughs> Super league, you mean? <laughs> I like that. It, it's not even enough to say, it, mate, it's touch football out there. It's a frilly version of touch football. <laughs> So Jamie Goddard got two weeks and Chris Close said, these blokes have gone and ripped this kid's heart out. I've seen some awful things done to our game in the past couple of years, but this is up there with the very worst of them. (laughs) (laughs) Two weeks. All Jamie Goddard did was defend himself, which is a God-given right of every man, woman and child. For For that, they have killed the bloke. <laughs> Bring God into it. <laughs> that may be the greatest rugby league quote of all time. He gets two weeks for beating a guy to a pulp and it ripped his, it ripped his, his vital life. organs out. They're, mate, they've killed the bloke. <laughs> two weeks. Oh, man. Different era, man. Different era. Glad it's gone. And for all, it's maybe talked about too much. It's still such a legendary moment in rugby league. You can't help but love it. Well, thankfully for the ARL, they had that brawl because um, Joey sacrificed his his good looks for the sake of that series because it wouldn't have been remembered at all. (laughs) So, yeah, so, I mean, really that is the last thing we need to say about State of Origin. It wasn't a memorable series. And I think... It's also emblematic of another reason you couldn't repeat the success of 1995. That series came at the height of the war. Passions were raised. There was so much anti-Super League public sentiment that it was easy enough to 
get behind the teams and get the series yeah. to fever pitch. But by 1997, you got these separate competitions, enthusiasm's down, and just the general vibe is this sucks. Well, I mean, the agile rugby league trope of getting up for games, you know, can you do it for a whole season? Two years into the Super League War, split comps, people were fatigued, exhausted mentally, physically, uh, emotionally, and spiritually, Chris Close. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, you know, maybe you think we're being too dramatic about the two-tone thing, but when you already have a bad feeling about the whole situation, the good players are gone, you're not as into it as you were a few years before, you don't want it to feel even less like a proper origin, and I think that's what the two-tone jersey did. Yeah. But one thing about the two-tone thing is, you know, as we said, it was devised a year before, so when technically the game was still together and from the ARL's perspective, they were going to win the court case and Super League was going to be history. So it was made in that situation. So it's not just the war forcing them to do something outlandish. I think there was a really genuine feeling of staleness about State of Origin as a concept. There was a lot of talk in the media about it being kind of finished or the passion wasn't there as it once was. So it was more than a Super League thing. And At that point, we're going to segue into the Tri-Series, which was Super League's attempt to refresh it. Give them marks for trying. Uh, Unfortunately, they failed. (laughs) They they did fail. And on top of Super League getting a bit stale, they also had a carrot to throw at the New Zealand Rugby League to get them to sign up. And Tri-Series was one of those carrots with a view that New Zealand wasn't in on the state of origin revenue, they wanted in on the glamour and they wanted their players to be able to take part in it. At the time, mate, I was spruiking this as the greatest thing ever. Mate, New Zealand's coming in, it's that exciting. See, they're pushing the boundaries. Everyone else is doing the same thing. They're bringing in New Zealand. What are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah. And um, But if this happened now, I'd be protesting with Barb. Yeah. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that a lot of the talk coming from John Rebo at the time is echoing some of the talk about origin we're seeing in the 2020s, where there's question marks about the ongoing relevance of it. John Rebo saying that there's great players in New Zealand who are missing out and talking up the vision, saying this was in Super League magazine. What happens when Adelaide produced their first homegrown Ricky Stewart or Perth produces a local player as good as Alfie Langer? And yes, we're still waiting for those players to come about, but... Rebo had a point in the 90s that as the profile of rugby league expands and players are coming from different areas to play, will Origin have lasting relevance? Well, I'll tell you what happens if Adelaide gets their uh, homegrown Ricky Stewart. There'll be some teenage kids there with some unsigned football cards. (laughs) (laughs) That's what will happen. (laughs) Never miss an opportunity, mate. Never. (laughs) But I mean, um, when they had all the Poms were out here, you know, Burgess and Graham and everything. We have to let the Poms into play. And now it's all these Pacifica guns. Yeah. How come the Kiwis can't play in the Samoans? It's like um, whoever's good at the time, they'll try and say Origin's dead and let them in. Yeah. I think it would honestly be great for the game if Origin was dead and it wasn't as relevant. But the thing is, it still is. The passion is there from the players. It's, you know, massively supported by the fans. And in terms of just pure talent and the skill on the field it's basically the best version of rugby league we can present i mean if you want to know how big origin is just ivan lendl like he's not watching yeah. um the super 12s is he like, no yeah yeah so uh, as ben darwin told us ivan lendl big 
Queensland State of Origin fan. But so it's fair enough that the New Zealand Rugby League would want in on that action. They've seen this intensity and they've seen the incredible popularity of it. Um, The players were keen. Matthew Ridge said, I'm fanatical about it myself. Can you imagine what it's been like for us having to watch it every year, knowing we were not going to get a shot at it? Yeah, that's something to consider. You don't consider the uh, human jealousy element of it. Yeah, yeah. So it also revenue. Yeah, exactly. When New Zealand have a feeling, rightly or wrongly, that they'd been poorly served by the ARL and they were offered the chance to get in on state of origin, like it's no surprise they jumped at it. So you can understand them wanting in. You can understand the players wanting to be part of it. I cannot accept what John Rebo said, uh, which was at one stage in the late 80s, their TV ratings per head of population were greater for origin matches than in Queensland or Sydney. The games were kicking off at 10.30 p.m. There were no New Zealand players playing. I just, I cannot accept that that statistic is true. They had a population of 2 million people at the time. Yeah, and I don't know much about statistics, but maybe that per head of population can be skewed in some ways. But I know uh, Super League spin when I hear it. I think that's... (laughs) (laughs) That's rotating, that comment. But there was, from the start, resistance about the concept. There was the feeling that it cheapens state of origin. And this was coming from within Super League as well as without. So Wayne Bennett said, it has nothing to do with me. We were consulted, (laughs) but it's not up to us to make policy. It's a Super League thing. And then he was asked if he had an opinion on it. He said, I've got no comment on it. Why bother talking to this guy? He's an absolute (laughs) nightmare. Then there was Glenn Lazarus who said, I think you take away the whole state of origin feel about the whole thing. I can't see any reason why they shouldn't have their own state of origin series, North Island versus South Island or something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or something <laughs> like when you consider even North Auckland versus South Auckland would be a mismatch. I don't think. <laughs> oh, it's the best. <laughs> or something. Just get whatever. <laughs> uh, Lazo is a sneaky contender for some of the best quotes of the whole series. I was watching the um, Tri Series Decider on YouTube, and his after-match interview was hilarious. Oh, I, I didn't stick around for that. I'll have to go back to it. Because you're so forthright and um, authentic, you know, but <laughs> condescending idea from Lazo there. But like, so what's your opinion on the, the cheapening of origin theory? I think it's true, but ultimately I don't really care about origin being cheapened as much as I do test football being cheapened, which I think yeah. this was an argument that was coming from a lot of people. And I'm much more concerned about this side of the argument than the origin thing. And it was pretty much across the board from the ARL saying this is a really bad idea. Well, I agree with them 100%. Yeah. So Arco came out and said, I think it detracts from international competition. Test football should be held above everything else. New Zealand is a separate country and to play at a level below international level cheapens the test team when they do play. It says Mr. Rest of the World. But- yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, this is the thing. There's that side of it, the you know, calling a match against a Fijian village an international. There's hypocrisy there. There's also irony in the fact that in the New Zealand rugby league's eyes, it was Arco's failure to prioritize test football and give New Zealand their dues. And again, that's contested. I think you can't just accept the New Zealand rugby league version of that, because I think the Arco administration did take some steps to play more regularly against New Zealand. But regardless, that aggrieved feeling is there. So there's irony in the fact that at this stage, Arco is the one saying it's not looking after the test team. 
I mean, self-serving uh, politician weasel words from Arco, but he's 100% right. I mean, if you can't beat a state, yeah, just reminds me of the Australia A in Australia and the one day cricket before one day cricket died. Yeah. It's a decision that looks okay on the surface, but if you don't play out the ramifications of it, which I think both of those are great examples of that, you're not seeing some of the potentially negative effects. And Johnny Raper's statement, I think, sums this up perfectly. I don't think it's a good idea because it would take the shine off the test series. I think they'd have to think long and hard before doing something like that. If New Zealand happens to lose to New South Wales or Queensland, the test series would be worthless. And as it turns out, they lose both games. And suddenly there's question marks. Oh, you know, New Zealand can't even beat New South Wales and Queensland. Like, what are we doing here? But, I mean, the one saving grace they had is it was new and it was exciting and they can get away with it because it wasn't destroying origin. It was destroying something new. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think that's part of the problem is that New Zealand weren't able to sell it as being new enough. Like, what is the difference? Why do we have two New Zealand teams playing So basically, it came down to the Tri-Series wouldn't have New Zealand players playing in England eligible for selection where the test team was. Madness. So you say, okay, well, it's more of like a local comp representative thing. Fair enough. But in practice, it just means it's New Zealand without Robbie Paul. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think it's fair enough. I think it's weird. I think it's dumb. One of the best things about that era was like when New Zealand would play a test against Australia, you'd see a couple of guys from the English League come over. It was cool. Yeah, 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 for sure. I like this from Graham Carden, who's the boss of the New Zealand Rugby League, when he was talking about the difference. He said, Our philosophy was that there would be a different selection panel and different coach, and they could have employed completely different ideas. Matthew Ridge, for instance, might be used at 5'8". (laughs) That's all you've got to sell the concept. We might play Ridgey at 5'8". Uh, as it turns out, Ridge was injured for the series, so we didn't get to see the Ridge at six revolution that would have been ushered in. Now, can we um, discuss the most pertinent question of this tri-series, the size of the jerseys? I mean, I've seen parachutes that were better fitting. Yeah. <laughs> these blokes were swimming in these jerseys. Are they, yeah. are they were playing, seriously. Yeah, very lurid colour schemes, large size. I think parachute is it, kind of right. It was, uh, yeah, just uh, off-putting even. But not their strength in general Super League jerseys. So also not their strength was analogies. I like <laughs> this from Ian Robson, who was the Super League's marketing manager and was asked, you know, about this new concept. He said, there are many items that make up our menu of rugby league products. We're introducing a whole range of new products. It would be like McDonald's bringing out four new hamburgers all at once. <laughs> What a monumental occasion that would be. (laughs) And he was then asked what Tri-Series is. You know, is it a cheeseburger? What is it? And he said, it's the Big Mac meal with fries and drink. Jesus. Way to sell it. But Yeah, it's superficial and unfulfilling. And and after you had it, you wish you didn't. And it causes uh, your internal organs to shrivel. Yeah. So to the series itself, it started with, New South Wales and Queensland, so a traditional origin matchup to start off with. Wayne Bennett was the coach of Queensland, Tim Sheens for New South Wales, and in some respect, both of those positions were kind of by default. So John Lang was the Australian Super League coach for reasons we'll discuss in part two. Not a lot of experience on either side, so the obvious choices were Sheens and Bennett. To the teams itself, it wouldn't be 
origin or origin adjacent football without an eligibility crisis. <laughs> and in this instance, it came from Ken Nagus, who was a New South Wales origin player. I think he debuted in 94. Yeah. The interesting thing is he should not have ever played origin for New South Wales. So he came to Canberra in year 12. Up to that, you know, born in Bundaberg, Queenslander through and through, uh, but picked for New South Wales. I think his comments put some perspective into the whole passion thing about origin. Like ultimately, players just want to play in the big games. They just want to play state of origin. I think the passion's like more in the fans than the players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ken Nager said, I consider myself a Queenslander and I'd prefer to play for Queensland. But if it works out that I have to play for New South Wales, then I won't knock it back. Wow. So I always pictured him as a blue. I, just, I couldn't picture him in any, yeah. any other jersey. He looks so cool and yeah. streaking away. But um, if he played for Queensland, he would have played way more Origins. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So for the Tri-Series, he was initially named in an expanded 25-man Queensland squad, which brought to light the you know eligibility furor. Thankfully, Nagus himself had some sense and said, I was raised in Queensland, but I didn't feel right changing to keep playing for them after already representing New South Wales. I got my opportunity for New South Wales, so I'm happy to keep playing for them. Is that common sense we're hearing in the first time ever in eligibility? <laughs> I, know. I don't want to use the word, American word, optics, right? We're going to use it because yeah. they don't consider the optics of Tony Carroll playing for New Zealand and then suddenly he's playing for Australia mm. and the fans going, Jesus, yeah. are we passionate about this test football or not? And yeah, like bad optics and just no sense from Queensland selectors to not, even if they thought it was something new and it's not origin, what you want to do is for the public to feel like it is origin yeah. and just bypassing past selections and starting your own thing is going to do the opposite of that. Look, I'm all for innovations like rigid 5.8, but not switching camps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So both teams were, were able to put together fairly good squads. I, I think if you look at New South Wales, it was Peachy, Nagus, Girdler, Eddinghausen, Matt Ryan, Daly, Alexander, Howe, Gower, Lazarus, Sean Ryan, Gillies, Ferner, Adamson, Hamono, uh, Robbie Ross, and Noel Goldthorpe on the bench. So fairly good squad. Uh, New South Wales Origin also had a good squad. I can understand the public feeling a bit confused by it all. And, you know, if you had a casual interest in the game and you only tune in for Origin, not understanding why some of your favourite players weren't there, I can forgive the public for that. Uh, what I can't forgive is Gary Freeman not being able to wade through this confusion. So he was asked about the possibility of Brett Mullins playing for New South Wales and said, yeah, it will be very interesting, but where will they play him? I thought Timmy Brasher had a strong game for New South Wales the other night. <laughs> what a clanger. I mean, I'm not going to set the slipper on Wiz because I think I've done this on this very podcast, pretend that I was talking about something that I didn't know about and then come out with something like that. I mean... On national TV, that is an absolute clangor of all yep. clangers. <laughs> the other Mickey Mouse thing about this concept and the way it was presented, this New South Wales versus Queensland match became a de facto test trial. So you had the first tri-series match. That would be almost immediately followed by the Anzac Day test between Australia and New Zealand. I really think splitting the tri-series with a test when you've already got like New Zealand playing in the tri-series. So dumb. One of the most boneheaded things Super League did. Convoluted and unnecessary. I think they were just flying a bit too close to the sun with their rep schedule. 
So this was uh, John Rebo in Super League magazine. Our representative program began with the Gatorade World Nines in Townsville and continues with the Anzac Day International between Australia and New Zealand later this month and the fast-approaching World Club Challenge. But for now, we focus on the Tri-Series. How can you possibly focus on any of that when it's all like... Super League wasn't flying close to the sun. They had an aircraft hangar in the core of the sun. <laughs> they resided in the core of the sun. So I think there was a like, one-month period where Alfie played against the Warriors for Brisbane, against New Zealand <laughs> for the Tri-Series, and for Australia against New Zealand in the Anzac Day Test. But it wasn't just Super League. It was like when they used to have the Anzac Test before Origin. Like, if you really respect Test football, you have the Origins and then the best of the best yep. are selected to play in a Test match. It's always yep. been asked backwards, but to have it, like, in the middle of the series, in the series that the Test team is playing in... <laughs> Yeah. Is insane. Agreed. And we don't have to get into another, you know, rant about losing the Pacific Test in the origin period, but at least they've learnt the lesson of not playing Australia and New Zealand before origin anymore. Yeah. But I think because of all this, there was a more muted atmosphere. Glenn Lazarus, again, talking about it, said, the hype's certainly not there. State of Origin's a proven product, and we're going out to show everyone this has got the same intensity, passion, and so forth. I just feel as though the public haven't grasped it as much as they used to. I mean, can you blame the public? No, you can't. And despite the best efforts of the uh, ticket salesmen or the ticket confetti sprinklers, (laughs) probably more accurately, (laughs) it was hard to get public buy-in. My favourite article came from Danny Wadler in the Sun-Herald, which I can't speak to the veracity of some of these ticket offers. Danny Widler said there were reports here and I heard this. So some of these offers may be exaggerated, but they all made me laugh equally. So I'm going to mention them anyway. Uh, Firstly, Widler said that he heard of flyers redeemable for free tickets being given out in front of Greater Union Cinema in the city, of a free (laughs) ticket being offered for every half-price movie ticket bought at Hoyts on Tuesday night. (laughs) I think I put in my notes the biggest innovation for rugby league out of this war was new and amazing ways to give away tickets. Yeah. Just out-of-the-box thinking. Yeah, some real innovation being shown. Uh, Ticket tech staff were given a buy one, get four free offer. Bloody hell. Telstra staff only had to show their work passes to get in. (laughs) I mean, just open the gates at this point. Yeah. I think a uh, long-time listener, Kyle Katasi, told us the story of him ringing up the office and getting something like, you know, 100 tickets, being able to take his entire grade to the Tri-Series game. It's so awesome. David Peachy asked for a family allocation of tickets and was given 80. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? It's like Argentinian hyperinflation. Yeah. <laughs> But one of my favourites was this was actually something that had a negative effect on the crowd was that Super League was going head-to-head with the Swans for the first Tri-Series match. So Sydney Cricket Ground was hosting the Swans. Next door at the SFS, New South Wales were playing Queensland. What's the first thing you do when you're planning a big event? Yeah. Is anyone playing right next door that could yeah. take half that crowd? <laughs> like, seriously? So, yeah, really dumb. But so Super League thought they would get on the front foot by going to the line for Swans tickets and trying to lure people across to their game with free tickets. That's embarrassing. Yeah. I think I remember that being in the paper, actually, at the time. Mm. 
really showing your hand that you haven't got anything to offer. Even more embarrassing was they waited for the Swans to announce their crowd before Super League announced theirs. So when the Swans said that they had 26,246 people, Super League then shortly announced that their crowd was 26,731. Oh, Jesus. So pathetic all round. Uh, Peter Jackson, who in Super League magazine, I think Peter Jackson is the only columnist that can hang his head high. Stand-up guy. No agenda. He was just honest and funny and actually said things. So we're going to talk about the fact that Peter Jackson was such a character in 1997 and didn't make it to 1998. We're going to discuss that tragedy later in the year. But just reading his columns in Super League magazine, it was the best part of the magazine every week and really miss that guy. I remember his midday show stuff. I used to watch it with my name. I used to crack up. God, he was funny. Makes me really sad talking about him, actually. It's like I really miss him. I know. But so in the midst of this ridiculous spin that was served up in Super League magazine every week, Peter Jackson said, let's face it, the first game was a bit of a disaster, both on and off the field. On the paddock, the game wasn't a contest. In fact, it was over at halftime. Off the field, there were all sorts of accusations about the amount of free tickets given away to fans. Some said 5,000, others claimed twenty. I don't know what the figure was, but I do know the interest wasn't as great as I'd expected. It just wasn't the same as Origin contests of the past, and that's understandable. I don't know what they were expecting. Two years of just ripping the hearts out of uh, fans like they're Jamie Goddard. Yeah. And then you give them this weird thing and say, turn up. What were they thinking? Yeah. Full house? Uh, a slightly different perspective from Peter Fralingos in the Daily Telegraph, who I think when we spoke about Frolengos during the Blitzkrieg era, I mentioned that I thought his reporting was pretty good by the end of 1995. Like you had a few weeks of really pushing the Super League line, but then he went back into being a rugby league journalist first. I think in 1997, he took several backward steps. And I don't know if there was a deal similar to the alleged deal in 1995 that was offered to him, but he became their chief Spruiker once again. His take on the first Tri-Series match was played before a wildly enthusiastic crowd of 26,731. Super League Chief Executive John Rebo was ecstatic with the crowd and the high standard of play. Of course he was. So the crowd at the ground wasn't too great. On TV, they got half the ratings of the previous year's State of Origin. They did manage to beat the 9.30 West versus Newcastle replay, which they could take (laughs) as a win. I mean, think about that. But the game itself was won easily by New South Wales, 38 to 10. That was the biggest origin, well, origin-adjacent victory by New South (laughs) Wales at that point. 18-2 at Lang Park in 1985 was the previous record. And that got us to game two, which was held in New Zealand with New Zealand taking on Queensland. And they really needed a good showing. It was important that New Zealand put up a fight and showed to a sceptical New Zealand public that rugby league was worth following and could be a nice alternative to the All Blacks. Graham Lowe probably oversold it slightly in Super League magazine saying, last Friday night was arguably one of the most important dates in the history of New Zealand rugby league. Do you have any figures on the circulation of Super League magazine? No, I'd, I'd love to. Actually, we might have an in with one of the key figures of Super League magazine, so I might have to follow that up. I reckon it could be in the tens. 
I was one of them. <laughs> but so this was New Zealand's introduction to Tri-Series. And one of the other weird things was the fact that there were different coaches for the New Zealand test team and the Tri-Series team. Madness. So Frank Endicott, who I think was either already the Warriors coach or would soon be with John Money's sacking, he was the test coach. Graham Norton was brought in to be the Tri-Series coach. The reason I wanted to bring up Graham Norton was this is the weirdest story. So 1985, he's in New Zealand. His wife is heavily pregnant and they attend the second test between Australia and New Zealand held at Carlaw Park. And they were struggling with a name for their soon-to-be-born child. So they came up with the idea that the player who had the biggest influence on the game, they named the kid after that person. (laughs) Well, so late in the game, the scores were tied until a big Australian winger grabbed the ball and ran 50 metres to score the try that would give Australia the win. That winger was John Rebo. Wow. But because they didn't really fancy the name John, their child was christened Rebo Norton. Wow. A slight spelling change. I think young Rebo Norton was uh, R-I-B-E-A-U. So harking back to the French origins of the de Bressac name. But Rebo Norton became the son of the future New Zealand Tri-Series coach. Uh, that's incredible. Sliding door. I know, it really is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm named after a guy who's really interested in finance. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm sure Rebo was at the stadium to watch New Zealand put in a courageous performance. The score was 26 to 12, but that flattered Queensland in some respect with New Zealand putting up a competitive showing for much of the match. So a better game. Peter Jackson came out and said it was easily the best match he'd seen in Super League to date, which is alarm bells in itself if a 26 to 12 win can be considered the best Super League game to date. I can't remember exactly what happened, but I remember enjoying it, the New Zealand games, as a kid. Mm. And that meant that New South Wales against New Zealand would decide the finalists for the Tri-Series. And this match was actually played in Canberra, which I think is innovative in itself, giving Canberra a Tri-Series match. And the game was won 20-15 by New South Wales, knocking out New Zealand, but not without a bit of controversy with Sean Hoppy denied a potentially match-winning try right at the end. Great winger in his day. New Zealand smelled a rat over that with their Tri-Series manager, Laurie Stubbing, said that the marketing team would be really happy with the result because (laughs) now they've got a game to market. It's in Brisbane between New South Wales and Queensland. End of story. We're just making up the numbers. Nice petulance there. (laughs) Trevor McEwen in Super League magazine maybe slightly overselling the impact of this no-try controversy, saying that it is now part of rugby league folklore. In years to come, it will probably be discussed alongside the 1989 Extra Time Grand Final, the Les Boyd-Darrell Broman incident, (laughs) and the Greg Dowling-Kevin Tamady sideline stout as one of the great controversies and incidents of the modern era. At this point, do you think they're having a laugh between themselves about how over the top they can go? Yeah. (laughs) That's hilarious. I know. I mean, in terms of New Zealand sporting outrage, it's not really talked about alongside Underarm, is it? I think uh, besides a podcast with a couple of train spotters, (laughs) nobody has ever spoke about it. (laughs) Uh, But I think Trevor McEwen was 
onto something with this statement. I wonder if it may also become the defining moment in New Zealand's involvement in the Tri-Series, which considering it was their last involvement in the Tri-Series, I think that is bang on. Spot on, yeah. So that gets us to the final, which in terms of an on-field thing in Super League, the Tri-Series final is the one thing with any lasting resonance. Do you think that's fair? I agree. I mean, I don't remember a single play of the rest of it. When this happened, I was in my full Super League mode. I was there saying, see, this is better than anything the ARL put out. Uh, (laughs) Longest game ever. Amazing um, spectacle. But then thinking about it now, it's like, it's what I was saying about the 97 grand final. Without that last minute thing, it's totally unmemorable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say, being the boycott Bill I am, as you (laughs) christened me the other day. (laughs) I was experiencing the Tri-Series final for the first time in the lead-up to recording this episode, so I hadn't seen it before. Watching the game, I I thought it was high quality, it was origin intensity, it had all the elements, and then you had this memorable ending as well. So thoroughly enjoyable watch. The thing that really stood out was how bad they were at setting up for field goals (laughs) in this era. You texted me when you were watching it, and I had to agree because... It was just such an afterthought, like goal kicking was an afterthought and suddenly they went, hang on, that's worth like half a try. We should practice that. Yeah. And then um, the field goal was like, we seem to be coming down to the wire a lot. We should maybe kick a few at trainings in case we can win the game that way. You know? <laughs> but they, they must have the 15 shots between them. It's the shots they didn't take that stand out for me. Like Queensland had the ball within five metres of the try line on a fourth tackle. They get tackled again. Alan Langer like, tries to jink his way through to the trial. And it's like- See, if he gets through there and scores, he's a hero. He's a jinking hero. But yeah. my position on jinking, I'm anti-jinking. But the misses were, weren't just like, oh, you shave the post. They're like 45 degrees off and like yeah. Yeah. just horrible. And um, <laughs> just different era, man. Like, I'm so happy for Goldthorpe, though. Oh. That was a beautiful kick, the one they hit. Yeah. But i got to say, it actually made for a much more entertaining extra time period and in the last 10 minutes of regular time. Yeah. I think now... So predictable. You do lose something in the, the spectacle when from 70 minutes or sometimes even 65, 60 minutes, it just becomes this field position set up for field goal. Oh, we miss, you guys have a turn. And So as a spectacle, I thought it was far more entertaining than a lot of extra time matches you see now. But so the game went to extra time and then it was extra time on top of extra time. It's contested as to whether it was at the time the longest game in rugby league history. There was a game against Western Samoa and Tonga in the 1992 Pacific Cup that went for 118 minutes. Uh, Later on in 2015, I think it was, there was a group game in the Hunter Valley that involved a 48-minute extra time period. I've got in my notes, what's the official verdict on this? And then a question mark. Ask Mido. Uh, I forgot to do that, so I don't have an official ruling. If Mido is listening or any other uh, stats boffin can... Yeah, if anyone else can give us what the official ruling is, that would be good to know. But regardless, it was a 103-minute game, an epic final. One of my favourite stories about the extra time period is in Bill Harrigan's book where he said that after the 20 minutes they had to stop and do another coin toss for another kickoff and Laurie Daly came over and said oh what are we tossing for and Alan Langer was there and said oh whoever wins the toss wins the game 
And then Bill Harrigan said, yep, that's right, Laurie, the toss is for the game. And Laurie was incredulous. And before he had to be told it was a G up and, <laughs> and you know, um, and I thought, oh, wow, what a funny story. Then I actually watched the Tri-Series final where because of Super League's referee's microphone policy, you can clearly hear Bill Harrigan saying, Laurie, Laurie, we're doing a toss. And this decides who's kicking off. Like, so the story's complete bullshit. Fabrication, yeah. I was going to say, like, because yeah. I, I read your dossier and then I'm watching the game and I'm thinking, hang on. I think if there's any truth to it, Alfie probably said something smart ass. Yeah. Which Bill Harrigan at the time ignored, but then when he was writing his memoir, turned it into this bigger story. But speaking of Harrigan, without his arrogance about video ref, we may not have gotten this classic finish. So, About five minutes into the extra time period, Brett Mullins gets the ball near the sideline, runs to score a try, but Harrigan ruled him back and said that he stepped out when the video showed that it would have actually been a fair try. It's just absolute narcissistic madness not to use the tools available. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully on this occasion it worked out for the fans. I'll give him a pass just in that it was a new concept. It's not like now where there's a public expectation that every play will be analysed and the refs don't see it as a slight on their abilities if they have to use the video ref. So I'll give him a slight pass there. I'm going to push back in the vote comments on that because it's in a supposed origin series deciding in extra time. Yeah. Maybe it's the time you would use it. Yeah, very true. That's a very fair point. But there were a lot of opportunities throughout the 103 minutes. There were the missed field goals that you've talked about. There were players held up in goal. And so let's get to Goldthorpe then. Goldthorpe, a very unlikely hero, third choice halfback with firstly Greg Alexander and then Ricky Stewart ruled out. If you can count Craig Gower as well, who ended up playing hooker, um, you could call him fourth choice. He, he was basically, if you look at the Super League halfbacks, Goldthorpe was basically New South Wales halfback by default. You had Alan Langer, obviously, at Queensland. Ricky Stewart, injured. Greg Alexander, injured. Paul Green, playing for Queensland. Craig Polamana, a Queenslander. Stacey Jones, a New Zealander. Uh, Matthew Rodwell had actually, by that point, been benched by Dean Lance in Perth. You had Steve Stone, who I think would have been eligible. Uh, Jason Ferris was eligible, but he was also in the process of being dropped uh, for Andrew Juneman at North Queensland. So well, it was um, basically Goldthorpe or no yeah, one. Yeah, but like reserve grade didn't stop the Blues in the origin. No. So like, yeah. <laughs> but I always loved North Goldthorpe. I always thought he was a cool player, mm. big heart, little guy. Just a, a real side note, I always love finding out about post-playing careers for players. And one of my favorites is Steve Stone. So him and his wife, Sue, are the directors of the National Trampoline Amusement Park chain Flip Out, which for any parents of young children, as I am, you would have spent many a, an hour making awkward small talk with other parents at <laughs> Flip Out birthday parties. So, so yeah, so thanks to Steve Stone for that. Um, interesting. So uh, that follows up from the Dean Triester juggling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I love finding out these little nuggets. So Goldthorpe was there, no sure place to retain his place for the final, but he got picked and goes on to become the Tri-Series hero, goes down in folklore. Well, I mean, it's the only memorable thing, like you said, and it's such a great thing for him to have. You know, the only guy that ever Mm. won a Tri-Series series, you know, longest game pretty much. People still talk about it. 
And what they also talk about, what goes hand in hand, is what happens at Goldthorpe immediately after, where he was Tri-Series hero and then was dropped by Graham Murray at the Mariners in favour of Brett Camorley. So Graham Murray in the Telegraph said, On the Wednesday night, Noel played in the Tri-Series, so I rested him for the Penrith game, started Brett in his place, and we won 30-6. to As we all know, Noel kicked the winning field goal for New South Wales the following Monday night. But in the Penrith game, Brett threw the last pass for three tries and put a grubber kick through for Neil Pincinelli to score a fourth try. And he goes on to say that he'd been praising Kamali's play in reserve grade and talking about that they were you know, putting pressure on the players in first grade and goes on to say, so the warning bells were ringing. And while I can understand surprise from other people when Noel was dropped, it wasn't a shock decision as far as I was concerned. I mean, a bit crook for goal thought, but I mean, Kamali... Gun player, even reserve grader. Yeah. You really feel bad for Goldthorpe. And to his credit, Graham Murray, you know, did it in a kind of man's man's way. He picked Goldthorpe up at the airport. He said, I wanted to speak to him before telling anybody else of my selection intentions. And, you know, said, look, this, this is what I'm doing. He said that Noel Goldthorpe was understanding. And maybe he was in the moment, but that's certainly not how it played out in the aftermath. So he came out in the press and said, I feel humiliated. I'm embarrassed. Everything has just hit rock bottom. One minute I'm on top of the world, the next I'm in the gutter. <laughs> Hyperbole in this episode is outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> it just would be so gutting to have a moment that you may, Noel Gold thought might thought he never would have got in his career. He's at the absolute pinnacle and then he's just, brought completely down he goes on to say when murray dropped me this week he said he couldn't fault my game he just said brett was doing things quicker and smarter obviously if he can outplay me after only one week back from injury he is something special <laughs> so getting petty there but as it turns out yes no goldthorpe brett Kamali is something special and unfortunately i love no goldthorpe unfortunately you're just not but here's the thing all right that's a real good example, microcosm of a great coach versus a good coach. In rugby league, yep. when reputations are there, you know, blokes can play a season too long and you've got to let him play because he's played 200 games for the club or whatever. Unless Shaw himself coach would have just kept Goldthorpe there and then, you know, maybe put Kamali off the bench or something. It's a real brave decision, I think. I agree. I mean, absolutely, it was the right decision and something that a good coach will do. You feel bad for Noel Goldthorpe and the way it ended. And he probably could have handled it better, but his place at the Mariners was untenable from that point on. He came out and said, we used to get along really well. Now he doesn't talk to me. He will only say hello if I'm walking past him. He won't go out of his way to do it. Which I wonder how much of that is just projection from the way he dealt with Murray. Like I can see him just shutting down and not really wanting to get involved in their relationship. This pettiness doesn't fill me with um, great pride hearing it now. Um, he's not the first guy to get usurped by a younger player. Yeah. I mean, he had that great yeah. moment. I'd rather have that moment live forever than a few first grade games for the Hunter Mariners, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that dropping basically defined his post-Dragons legacy. He goes on to play for the Rams the next year, goes to the Cowboys, never got close to a rep jersey again, and played his last game for the Cowboys in May 2001, was dropped and basically retired from there. So what looked like a ballsy move on the surface from Graham Murray was given like 1,000% 
thousand percent vindication with what happened with Brett Kamali's career. Absolutely. I mean, but like Goldthorpe's career, you can be very proud of that. The grand finals of the Dragons led the Dragons. Yep. Played way above his weight. Mad heart. Mm. Good runner of the football. Good organizer. Good kicker. Yeah, I think in my lifetime he has been the best Dragons halfback until Ben Hunt came along. Yeah. So I really like Noel Goldthorpe. It's rough stuff for him, but that's the business they're in. And yeah, Graham Murray ultimately made the right call. But so that was the end of the Tri-Series final, which understandably there was a lot of crowing by John Rebo and other Super League figures about it. He said, this is what Super League's all about. That was Rebo and <laughs> Bill Harrigan saying it was the second best match he'd ever refereed, you know, behind the 89 grand final. High praise. Peter Jackson calling it one of the greatest games of rugby league ever. Because even Neil Whitaker came out and said it was a great game. Uh, well, he said good game. He said, I thought it was a good game. It would have been hard not to enjoy it. Interesting for me, Jeff Toovey said, it was obviously from reports a good game. So interesting <laughs> that Jeff Toovey wasn't even watching. <laughs> He's boycotting with you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a lot of talk in the aftermath that this is the moment that Super League arrived. This was Super League magazine spin. If ever there was a moment when Super League became a part of sporting life, <laughs> It was in the 103rd minute of the amazing marathon performance. So let me get this straight. The competition you've been planning for three years arrived midway through their um, inaugural season. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, even that is qualified by the fact that it didn't really. The four matches drew 94,000 spectators, so averaging 23,000, which isn't too bad on its own, but it's not origin and it's not the buzz you need. Then there was talk about the future of New Zealand in the Tri-Series or whether we just go back to state of origin. Trevor McEwen at Super League magazine said, while the Kiwis didn't make it to the inaugural Tri-Series final, there can be little doubt they've contributed considerably to the Tri-Series concept. (laughs) And in the fact that they are the third (laughs) part of that Tri-Series concept. Condescension. Uh, very true. But Neil Whitaker said that in any United competition, it would be going. He said he thinks it takes away from uh, international football. By the end of the year, even New Zealand had walked away from the concept. So Gerald Ryan at the New Zealand Rugby League said, in our opinion, it'd be better for everyone if the Aussies went back to their state of origin games and played us in regular test matches. We've made that view known to people in Sydney, and we hope it will be helpful in compromise talks. Well, I mean, that's common sense, but I mean, looking back on it now and the thing we're doing, it's a really interesting and and funny anomaly, one year of the Tri-Series. And to me, the standout is how little enduring legacy it has. Like In the immediate aftermath, when Goldthorpe kicked the field goal, the first thing Bill Harrigan did was to call out to his touch judge, get the ball. So he... (laughs) got the ball to, you know, have it as a keepsake of what would be this legendary moment in rugby league history. Jeff Dunn in The Australian said, the final will be long remembered in rugby league history, which it kind of hasn't. Like, there's just such little legacy of this concept in this series. It's kind of memorable. It's just one of, out of all the Origin games I remember, Lockyer scoring on the bell, mm. Sticky with his dummy and scoring in 93, whatever it was. This one's probably up there in the top three or four that I remember. I think you're right that 
an interesting anomaly is probably where it sits in terms of rugby league history. Let's not kid ourselves, though. Without the extra time, it is literally a footnote. Yeah, yeah. But as the ARL showed with a very half-baked and ugly-looking State of Origin series, they can't rest on their laurels and talk about what a great product they had either. So we leave the domestic representative situation for 1997 there, and we'll be back in our next episode with international football. We had rest of the world. We had an Australian tour of Great Britain. We had an Anzac Day test. We had another match against New Zealand. So a lot to talk about and a lot of ramifications for the two competitions in 1997. So I hope you've enjoyed this one and we will be back with part two uh, very soon. Toodaloo.